Hi, everybody, and welcome to That's Life, where the extent of my being ready for Rosh Hashanah is that I bought honey. That's literally it. Good morning, folks. Thanks for listening. I'm Miriam L. Wallach, General Manager here at the Nachum Siegel Network, and the voice and face of Breaking Bread Oven on Instagram. Follow us at Breaking Bread Oven on Instagram, and of course, follow me, Miriam L. Wallach, on Instagram as well. You can find me here every Thursday, right after Allison, right before Nachum's live lunch. Reminder, with Nachum's El Chesed campaign very much underway, we encourage you to visit terror-victims.org.il and give what you can. That's terror-victims.org.il. Give what you can. I gave a donation this week. Trust me when I tell you that money is very much well spent and well donated. Also, please consider sponsoring a day of Elul Shofar Blowing. You can go to fjbunity.org and click on Sponsorship Opportunities and dedicate a day of Elul Shofar Blowing here at JM and the AM. Let's quickly do the national holidays, but my guest is on the line and I have so much to discuss with him. Today is National Dog Day. I really want a dog. Will anybody buy me a dog? Nobody I live with will buy me a dog, so basically I'm pleading with you. It's also National Women's Equality Day. Let's celebrate that today and every other day of the year. You're listening to That's Life here at the Nachum Siegel Network. I am joined today by Dr. Norman Blumenthal, licensed clinical psychologist who serves as the Zachter Family Director of Trauma and Crisis Intervention for OHEL. He is also an adjunct professor at REITS and the Furkaf Graduate School of Psychology, both at Yeshiv University. In private practice, Dr. Blumenthal can be found at, in Cedarhurst, New York. He's also the founder and chairman of the Board of Education for Kahal and a consultant too, and a past president of Nefesh. Dr. Blumenthal, good morning and thank you for joining us. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Thank you. So a lot of people have anxiety for a lot of different reasons, and we're totally not going to cover everything today. But what I do want to discuss is getting back to school. There are a number of issues, obviously. I don't know if we're calling this COVID school year 2.0, round two, second inning. I hope there aren't nine. I don't know how to refer this, refer to this. But we are looking at a different situation than we were in September of last year. So let's first by let's first start by discussing the difference between last year's September and this year's September. Well, I think the key difference is that last year's September was still to some extent a continuation of the original event. Uh, that the the call obviously was that we were in a better place last year September, but it was but we still were reeling from the COVID virus and all the precautions and the social distancing and masking and quarantining that we had to go through the, during the prior months. So we we weren't out of the woods yet. What's different this year is that there really was a perception that this is winding down. Mm. Uh, the vaccinations, the reduced number of uh, illnesses, certainly the significantly reduced fatalities, the sense that science was finally getting a handle on this. So I think many of us, the children and ourselves included, figured that we're on our way out, that we're emerging from this crisis, um, and things will get back to normal. And now there's a resurgence, there's the new Delta variant, there's the possibility of other variants, there's talk about resuming, masking, social distancing, going backwards. And that's a very different experience. Right? We can sort of grit our teeth and bear a difficult time. But when we, we think we're out of it and we've wiped our brow and assumed that now we're home free, and then to have to go back to a previous 
difficult and traumatic event has its own unique challenges. Right. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Also, I would imagine that people's willingness to go along with the mandates, to go along with the restrictions last year, we were much more open to and welcoming, I will use that word, to all of these limitations because we were told that it was for our betterment and we were told that we would stay safe and our kids would stay safe. And now a year later, with the conversations about bringing masks back in and everything you already mentioned, and yet here we are a year later, there's a lot of reticence in terms of welcoming, and now I use that term with with quotation marks, welcoming those limitations back in our lives. Right. Yeah, it's not a perfect metaphor, but they say that animals that were raised in captivity, who are let free, if they're captured again, they, they just can't go back into captivity. They just sort of die. You know, they can't take it. I don't think it's perfectly akin to what, what we're talking about, but yeah, we, when we thought we were done and now to have to go back to it is, is very trying, is very difficult. And are kids more willing, because kids are more accepting by nature, are kids more willing to go back to the way things were, to go back to those limitations than adults are? So, yeah, I think in some respects it is easier for children. First of all, for the very young children, uh, a summer is a very long time. I'm sure you Mm. remember how long it took to get to your birthday. (laughs) Um, And and now we want to try to to pull the brakes on it. Um, So so there's been a long hiatus for the very young children. The other thing that I think is important to keep in mind with children is, in contrast to adults, is that children are constantly facing new challenges constantly facing new situations and are very experiencing some very rapid growth. So they have built in to their psyche a, a, real, a much more adaptive capacity, much more uh, a greater ability to adapt and adjust to new situations than many of us adults have. So uh, it may be easier on children. On the other hand, the price they pay mm. may be greater. If you think about developing social skills, which is such an integral part about go- of going to school, and when you have to spend your day in a mask and you have to be separate, you know, distanced, and, and your very natural and spontaneous interaction with others is being so regimented and controlled, uh, they're missing out on some very important parts of schooling, the, the social part of schooling and even the educational part. Uh, I think it's been pretty established that the, the remote learning, as we're doing it now, has not been as successful as in-class learning. We may perfect it, and maybe it'll catch up. But for the time being, there has been an academic price to pay as well. Right, 100%. And it, it's interesting because um, I'm also thinking about conversations that kids overhear in their homes from their parents, things their parents say. So while a child might be or in general, children are more welcoming or more accepting of things that they are told that they have to do. They're also listening to the advice of the people who raise them and who love them, who are saying things, myself included, saying things in the home that would be contrary to what they are, what these children are being told that they have to do. Very important point. Parents, with a parent's approach and attitude, especially for the younger children, we're talking about pre-adolescents. Once they get to adolescents, it's the opposite of what you think. But uh, certainly for the pre-adolescents, um, what you think and what you feel and what your perception, even with adolescents to a certain extent, I'm a, I said that somewhat facetiously, but uh, is very important. And I will tell you one more thing is you're not going to fool children. Mm. They, they, they read through the nuances of our language right. and the quiver in our voice. They know what we're thinking. Right. And if we're unclear or if we are at odds with, let's say, the dictates of the school or the the community, 
And even if we were going to try to cover that up for the child's sake, they'll see through it. I used to say, I used to say babies and dogs smell fear. <laughs> yes, yes. There, and there's there's a truth right. to that. There's no science to what I'm saying because I'm not a scientist. But there's a truth to it in sure. that there is a sense, there's a sixth sense that animals yeah. and babies have when something is dangerous or something is un sure. that uh, they're, they're unsure of a situation. They can sure. sense it. So in this case, if you're a parent who has a toddler, you have to be extra comfortable or extra good of an actress or an actor when walking into a situation which could be let's say nerve-wracking and i'm using that term generally where your kid is now going to pick up on that if you're wearing a mask and they're wearing a mask you guys got to keep it as as calm as possible yeah i would take it a step further i don't think it's even a matter of performing or acting it's a little bit like the probably the most overused metaphor in parenting which is what they say in the airlines to put the oxygen mask on yourself before you put on your job right you reach your own conclusion you reach your consensus yourself achieve that plateau and then instruct your children. Mm. If you're on the fence or you're uncertain, or as I said, if you're trying to feign a position that you don't really adhere to, they'll see right through it. Right. A hundred percent. You're listening to That's Life here at the Nahum Siegel Network. I'm joined by Dr. Norman Blumenthal, licensed licensed clinical psychologist who serves as the the Zachter Family Director of Trauma and Crisis Intervention for OHEL. Doc, let me ask you a few questions about being a mental health professional right now. I I mean, we're going to hopefully talk about some of the further concerns of parents and certainly the concerns of kids. But tell me about your concern moving forward in this school year as a mental health professional. So, as I said, one of the concerns I have is how difficult it is to go back to a protective but costly position when you feel that you've already emerged from it. Right. So I think that's a very unique anxiety and it's going to be very challenging and difficult. The other thing that concerns me is that when we're in a traumatic situation, very often the emotional toll or the emotional impact is sort of parked. It sort of lies dormant because we have to be busy with, basic survival and health. So we don't have a time really, the luxury to sort of let, us, let, come, let it come to our consciousness what impact this has had. And ironically, I'm concerned about when all this is over. When science finally conquers this illness like it has polio and malaria, when they, when they have the, the inoculations, the herd immunity, called whatever you want, and we're done, I'm, I'm afraid of the fallout then. Because I think that's when some of the anger, I'm afraid of it on an individual level, on a communal level. Some of the anger, the frustration, the fear, the, the past trauma will, will find its expression, will come out, and what, what that impact will be. And, and are, you, are you saying that on, let's say, a micro level or a macro level? Meaning, is it immediate that, that people are going to act out in their own homes or that on a greater level, the... the, the lack of trust that we have right now for our elected officials when we were told X a year ago or more than a year ago at this point, and now we're still looking at X. <laughs> we, we're not looking at Y, we're still looking at X. Are you talking about on a greater global level as well? So my expertise is on the individual level, so I would have to take what I say at a global level and a grain of salt, but I also consider myself the world's expert on politics, etc. But... Um, <laughs> You know, the, the, I like to, you know, I like to quote the great philosopher, New York philosopher, Yogi Berra used to say, predicting is very difficult, especially about the future. <laughs> so I'm not going to try to predict the future. 
Um, but but I'm, I am, I do harbor concern both on individual level and on the broader global level of the fallout from this tension, whether it is mistrust of science and, uh, and elected officials, whether it's looking for a scapegoat for the, some of the right. difficulties that we'd have to go through, whether it was just the, uh, a year, maybe two years of losing out on the education and some of the healthy aspects of being in school, being with peers, learning from others. Um, it's, it's very hard to say, but I do have a sense of uh, ill at ease. I mean, I also, by the way, and I guess we have to temper it with also, I do have a, a lot of respect for human ingenuity, for creativity, and I think we've seen a lot of it. Uh, during this crisis, and maybe that'll emerge as well, and uh, we'll, we'll be in for better times and, and more resilient individuals, or some mixture thereof. But uh, my, my main thought is, and that's sort of based on my experience in trauma, what I know about trauma, is that I, I don't, even if we reach that uh, you know, crescendo that we're hoping to achieve, which is the cure and to be finished with all this and to be able to put it out of our mind. Emotionally, that's sometimes when we're going to feel it the most. And let me ask you a question while we're, while we're sort of on this same um, topic. One thing that concerns me is, is something we make a joke about around here at the network is that we've lost track of time. Is that, oh. you know, I'll joke about something being a COVID ago or, you know, or, or, mm -hmm. some, or, you know, people say BC before COVID. But when, but when we talk about things like that, it's because we've lost perspective of things that happened and when they happened before COVID hit because that COVID time span continues to expand. And so whereas you might say, oh, that was six months ago, six months is finite. COVID continues. And so even if we're not in the throes of things that we were March, April of 2020, still we are 15, 16 months later. And I don't know what I don't I don't know when things happened beforehand. I've lost perspective of time. From a cycle from a psychological point of view, I assume mm -hmm. that other people are are feeling this way also. What kind of effects does that have long term? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's a great point and it's interesting because there's two ways to look at time. There is the actual amount of time. If you look at it say from a physics perspective, you know, a minute is a minute wherever you are, whatever's going on, Time is finite and measurable, but the perception of time mm. is very different. Time is perceived differently. There was once a study done where they, they interviewed police officers who were involved in a shootout. Right, whatever, your classic your bank robber, they come and there's a, a shootout and it's over. And they asked them afterwards to estimate how long the shootout was. And pretty consistently, they overestimated it because so much happened mm. in such a small amount of time that it felt like it was longer. And, and I think that I, I agree with you that I think our perception of time has been distorted. First of all, there has been the disruptions of our normal routines. Right. Um, I can give you a personal example. I have a child who uh, and her family live in Israel. I hadn't seen her in so long because of COVID. Uh, it it was not something would be more, more typically we would see each other at least once a year. And as it was, we managed to see them, but it was after about a year and a half, or, uh, and it was much longer time period. So it distorts your sense of time, and certainly with the quarantine, right. uh, being apart from people who are a regular part of your routine certainly distorts you. And, and it's interesting that an event like COVID, which is this persistent, 
one that that does, doesn't let up kind of prolongs their sense of time. And a sudden dramatic event would make it seem like it might make them seem quicker, but this is just schlepping. And therefore, it does feel like a, probably a disproportionately long amount of time. Doc, they don't, they don't train you for this, do they? Uh, <laughs> you listen, uh, I don't think in any profession uh, anybody can adequately train you for what you're going to see or what you're going to be dealing with. Well, that... But certainly not. This is not the work I thought I'd be doing. Well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, I would have hoped in neither one of our lifetimes would this have been the work that you're doing. Uh, we're, we're, right. just, we're talking to Dr. Blum, Dr. Norman Blumenthal this morning. He's a licensed clinical psychologist who serves as the Zachter Family Director of Trauma and Crisis Intervention for OHEL. Doc, let's, let's talk for a second about uh, concerns that kids have that they can't articulate. I know that in terms of things that my kids have been able to articulate, and they have articulated over the last year and a half, obviously the separation from their their friends initially at the beginning was so dramatic and so traumatic that it certainly had effects on them for months. And then, thank God, another successful summer at camp um, where everyone has returned and healthy and happy and have unbelievable memories and whatever have undone some of that trauma. I'm not saying it's erased it, and you as a psychologist, a, a licensed clinical psychologist in this department would say to me, Miriam, don't be naive. Um, you're not erasing the trauma. It's still there, but it's managed. So what other things... We're talking about re-entering school wearing the mask. We're talking about the limitations. Are, are kids still going to have new um, anxieties that they are going to face this September that they haven't faced yet in the last year and a half? Again, uh, I'll need, I would need prophetic vision to know that. I'm not sure what's, what's down the pike for us with these variants and with the, with the vaccinations. It's, it's, it's very hard to predict. Right. I, I think, um, that's, I a, think that's, a, that's a fair point. So let me, let me, let me adjust a second. Yeah. Are there kids who are saying now, like adults, I'm vaccinated? I'm vaccinated. I'm over 12. Let's not talk about the under 12 right now because we have a lot of concerns for kids who are under 12. But the kids who are under 12, the kids who just came back from summer camp, the kids who are healthy, are they looking at each other and saying, yeah, I'm vaccinated. Let's go. Let's go. Let's live. Yeah. So that, that I'm hearing. I'm hearing that from kids and that from adults. That let's throw caution to the wind. We're just not going to beat this thing. Now there's a new variant. Then there's going to be another variant. And let's just get the disease and hope for the best. Um, so, uh, so people are. There are a number of people that are going from being cautious, and I'm not talking about the ones who have uh, a position, call it politically or whatever, that you know that feel that the vaccination is not effective. I'm talking about the people who actually say yes, it is. They buy into what the CDC says, but they're exhausted. They're, 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 they've had it, and they're, they want. They just don't can't go back to where the way it was, and they're just going to say, I'm just going to get the darn disease, and whatever it does, it does. Right. And uh, you know, again, I'm not. I'm not here to say what's right or wrong, but there is that sort of impulsive response. And you hear that from kids, and I would have to say from teenagers in particular. Um, the other thing that you said earlier about not being able to articulate it, that is true. That's a common experience with uh, dramatic or climactic events that defy words. I mean, I often say to people that unless you're William Shakespeare or Edgar Allan Poe, it's very hard to put into words a lot of these kinds of experiences. And sometimes what you can't put in words come out either medically mm. in terms of stomach aches and headaches and these kind of uh, somatic complaints, or sometimes in behavior. Um, you know, it's nothing out of the ordinary for an anxious child 
to get very aggressive, to get very impulsive. They don't know what to do with themselves, and they can't quite put it in words. So they, it comes out in behavior. And, and sometimes understanding what's behind the child's misconduct is detective work. Because it, it could be, uh, let's say, inherent lack of self-control, but it also could be anxiety, could be depression, and uh, particularly with younger children who don't necessarily have the vocabulary, you have to sort of try to decipher that. Right. I'm, Doc, with only a few minutes left, and, and if you can't answer this, I totally respect that, but have you overall both, in, in all of your the titles and hats that you wear, have you seen an uptick in the, um, in the use of medication to control a variety of different anxieties over the last year and a half? Well, we've seen, uh, even before COVID, we were seeing a dramatic increase in anxiety. In fact, OHEL has an arrangement, I believe it's 40 schools, where we're training teachers and school personnel to recognize anxiety and almost deputizing the, the teachers to treat at least moderate levels of anxiety. And this was even before COVID. Um, so we're seeing, in, in children in particular, a dramatic increase in, in anxiety and in depression, and medication plays a role mm. in in the uh, uh, treatment of these conditions together with psychotherapy. So it's not like we're just, you know, anesthetizing people, but but in order to benefit even from a therapeutic intervention, sometimes the anxiety has to be tempered a bit, right. so so they can even benefit from from the therapeutic intervention. So. So we are seeing a dramatic increase. Uh, I think in the height of COVID, when people, when, when, you know, people were limited to Zoom sessions or where therapists were hard to access, I think there may have been people with anxiety conditions and depression that may have relied more heavily on medication. I don't know if there's any statistics, although I know that the pharmaceutical, the, the pharmacies reported uh, a huge increase in, in the prescription and dispensation of uh, like clonopin or the anti-anxiety medication. So maybe during that crisis period when the, the alternative treatments were less available, we may have seen a dramatic increase. Um, whether we're seeing that now or not, I wouldn't surprise me if we're seeing some increase. Um, but again, is it because of COVID or is it because in general People are having a harder time coping, and there is, a, as I said, a dramatic increase in anxiety and, and even depression, especially among children. Wow. Wow. All right, Doc, with my last, with my last 30 seconds on, you're going to say to me, Miriam, I can't answer this in 30 seconds, and that's fair. <laughs> but let me, let me give it a shot. You know, I, Those I, are usually the hardest questions. Go ahead. Yeah, I, yeah <laughs> sorry about that. I, I, I'm a big believer in transparency. I'm a big believer in telling my kids that adults don't know everything and doctors don't know everything, and we do our best, and sometimes we make mistakes. Is that still an answer to give to kids as they come into school year 2021? It's more of an answer because we used to be able to, especially when it was a matter of disease or, God forbid, death, we used to be able to say to children, the death of young people, the child of a, a young parent is rare, uh, especially during the height of COVID when many people were dying. And even now when many people are getting sick, we, we can't say that as readily. So we're shifting our emphasis from outcome to action. And when, if we need to calm children down, we're not telling them it's highly unlikely, quote-unquote, something like this is going to happen, but we're saying we're doing everything we can. Mm. And, uh, the, and the medicine is doing everything they can. So we're, we're shifting from, from a, an, a focus on outcome to focus on action, which, by the way, has been the approach 
for people in traumatic situations where the trauma is re recurrent. For example, in Stay Road, uh, the, the mental health professionals helping the residents of Stay Road with the constant bombing didn't make any kind of promises like the bombing is going to stop. It doesn't look like it is. But, but uh, the assurances were, were, you know, we have this, the, the alert system, we have the Patriot right. anti-missile things, we have, we have the McLeod, we have the, you know, the, 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 the shelters. Um, and so we're doing what we can, and I think we're shifting very much to that approach. Very, very interesting and actually very reassuring. Dr. Norman Blumenthal, licensed clinical psychologist from OHEL and available in private practice in Cedarhurst, New York. Doc, if people want to reach you, how can they do that? So I think uh, email is the best unless it's urgent. Um, and my, my OHEL email address is Norman underscore Blumenthal at OHOFamily.org. My personal one is Dr. N. Blumenthal at gmail.org. Um, I do have, uh, I'll give you my office number, and there is a cell phone number there if it's an urgent matter. My office number is 516-374-3600. Um, my, my OHEL number, I don't even know by heart. <laughs> That's okay. You your call. office, your yeah, office number you is good. Huh? <laughs> your office no, number I, is good. Yeah, and I certainly can call OHEL and ask to speak to members of the trauma team. I'm not the only one. We have a, a team of trained mental health professionals who are, who are also trained in trauma. We were in Surfside. We were in Pittsburgh. Mm. Uh, we were in Jersey City. So if anybody needs help with any of the kind of traumatic events like this, just call, the, call OHEL and ask to be put in touch with the trauma team. You got it, Doc. Thank you so much for your time. I know my, I, I took more time than I said I would. I appreciate that's it. quite all right. Thank you. And I wish you a happy uh, and a healthy new year. You too, and my best Nachum. I will. Thanks so much. Uh, okay. So, bye-bye. You've been listening to That's Life here at the Nachum Siegel Network. A full afternoon of programming continues. The live lunch starts just at the conclusion of this show, usually hosted by Nachum Siegel. This week, it's Avrami. Avrami, thank you for sitting in. Of course, Throwback Thursdays at 1 p.m. JM Rewind is at 4 p.m. And the Arab Shabbat Show, hosted by Mark Zomik, brought to you by our good friends at Kedem, is at 7 p.m. morning. Avrami hosts Saturday Night Siegel. This Motzei Shabbat starting at 9. Matis hosts JM Sunday starting at 7 a.m. We close our show today with Sibat Hasibot by Yishai Rebo. If you have tickets to tonight's concert at the King's Theater, way to go. It's a sold-out show. I'm sure he'll be great in Chicago over the weekend. Everybody enjoy. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys. הגלתי קצת בעצם ובמרחב הפתוח רואים באופק את השמש אין ספק אני בטוח בסוף עתיד בהר הדרך רק פתח לנו שערי אמונה שערי הבנה שאין לנו מלך אלא אתה
מציאות אחרת, לפדות את הסירי הכוח, ולכו דהרשת, גם לקבל את השחור לבן, עם כל צבעי הקשת. רק לנו שערי החלה, שערי התחלה, כי אין לנו מלך, אלא אתה סיבת הסיבה. 